What? What is this nonsense? Another supplement to episode 25? That was like three months ago. Adam, what are you doing? Well, let me tell you what I am doing. I am flipping through Descent into Avernus, and I am absolutely loving it, and I see that there are more fiends to bring you. And because I love you as much as I do, I thought that I would take the opportunity right now during the month of October, as we are gearing up to Halloween, after we've talked about undead and we're talking about horror, we got Black Dragons next week, we're doing all this Call of Cthulhu stuff going on, but we're not talking about fiends, so I thought that now would be the time to do it. Now is the time to bring you lovely people the final update which brings us completely up to date on absolutely everything fiendish. So, buckle in. We're going to hell. So, there are a number of strengths in this book, and there are also a handful of weaknesses. And one of the things that I want to mention right now is the fact that if you're picking this up to get some more fiends in your life, then you are going to be sorely disappointed because, honestly, there's not a lot. And strangely, there's not a single new devil. You get some good stuff about the gods... You get some stuff about the arch devils. You get some decent landscape stuff. And we're going to talk about the vehicles here in a few minutes. And all that is fantastic. The Baldur's Gate stuff, great. But there's not a single new kind of devil. As a matter of fact, there are only two new fiends in the entire book. The first one is the Hell Wasp. Now, the Hell Wasp is lawful evil, but it's considered a generic fiend. It's not a devil. It's large, it's CR5, and its AC is high for this level, but the HP is low, which leads me to believe that it's supposed to flutter around and hit your guys and make it really a pain in the ass to try to hit this thing as it weaves in and out of battle. It only crawls at 10 feet per round, but it does fly at 60 feet, so this is very much a hit-and-run kind of, kind of attacker here. Its strength is good, and its dex is okay, but the rest is average with Charisma being pretty low. It has dex and wisdom uh, saves, which are you know, nothing to write home about, but, I mean, CR5, so the fact that it gets saves at all is pretty impressive. One of the few vulnerabilities that we ever see in D&D comes with the Hell Wasp, and that is the vulnerability to cold. And it's because if you look at this, when you get the impression of this creature itself, there's some sort of internal fire burning deep in its belly, which is why it's also immune to fire. It has pretty standard dark vision at 60 feet, and it speaks infernal, strangely, which is kind of neat, and I like that. Uh, but it can also communicate telepathically with any other hell wasps within 30 feet. Like everything else down here in hell, the attacks are considered magical, and it has multi-attack. It actually gets two attacks, one for each kind of attack. The first one is its sting, which does moderate piercing damage for this level, and it's a D8. But it also does 2D6 fire damage which really goes into the whole idea that these hell wasps are, are built with hell fire in their bellies. It also forces a relatively easy con save. It's only a DC 12. But if you fail, you are not only poisoned, but you are also paralyzed. 
Now, you may think that the paralyzed makes the poison kind of useless, and it does as far as a disadvantage on attacks and ability checks, but it's also a disadvantage on saves. And while there's nothing else really here that forces a save, you are just going to be able to start stacking stings round after round after round. The other attack that it gets is sword talons, which are really just its really sharp legs, uh, according to the art. But, you know, it has a decent chance to hit, and it does 2d4 piercing damage, but, but that's it. The real big thing about this is the sting, and the fact that it can fly in, hit you, fly out. And I would say that because it can communicate telepathically with any other Hell Wasp within 300 feet, these guys need to come moving in a pack. Yes, it's a CR5. Yes, it's going to terrify the shit out of your Tier 1 party. But I want to throw about 7 of these things at a Tier 3 party and see how they handle it. The next thing we have on our list is the Crockett Toic. This one is so strangely out of place in this book, but I absolutely love it because it's so weird. This is a demon. It is chaotic evil, but it's gargantuan. It is an amphibious fish-like demon with teeth, fur, ears, and a hyena's laugh. It's like if a fish were imbued with hyena features and were blown up to just monstrous size. That's so cool and so weird. The other cool thing about it is there's only one of them. This is not a kind of demon. This is the Crococtoic. This one. And it's Ianagu's personal pet. For those of you that remember my discussion before in the Demons supplement about Yinagu and how he is uh, directly linked to Knowles, Yinagu is just chaos. He's just utter madness and destruction. Of all of the demon lords, he's going to be the one that is by far the most destructive and chaotic. And I love the fact that he's got a freaking pet that's gargantuan and is amphibious. And it's amphibious... Because, check this out, it is immune to mind-altering effects, specifically the river sticks. And it's used as a troop transport for demons by holding the demons in its stomach and puking them out when it gets to its destination. It's even been known to do this with Yinagu himself. So this thing is like, think about like a giant whale covered in fur that can walk on land that pukes up demons Sometimes, occasionally, a demon lord, and it's got this hideous hyena's laugh to it. It's a CR-14, and it has a low AC for this level, but it has shit tons of hit points. It walks at about 60 feet around, and it swims at 60 feet around, so this thing is relatively fast, too. Which tracks with a lot of the Knoll and the raiding party and Yinagu himself lore that's out there, so... Its strength and con are huge... It's intelligent is weak, and everything else is pretty average. Its main saving throw is Constitution to get a huge bonus to that. But its Wisdom gets a boost too, which is kind of nice. It has a resistance to cold, fire, lightning, and all the regular non-magical bludgeoning, slashing, piercing nonsense. It's also immune to poison, and being charmed, frightened, and the poison condition. It has great dark vision, and it understands Abyssal, but it can't speak it, so it can be commanded. This thing really does feel like a henchman to Ianagu, and if I was ever going to do a Null campaign, this shit would be showing up in it at high levels. So like I said, it's amphibious, so he can breathe air and water, and he can walk on land and swim and stay submerged. 
It has advantage on saving throws against spells and magical effects. Its weapons attacks are magical. It can't have its memory stolen or modified. And it is immune to any attempts to detect or read its thoughts. What's interesting here is that there's really no mention of whether or not you can detect or read thoughts of things inside of it. So that's going to be up to DM discretion. It can jump 30 feet high and to a distance of 60 feet without needing a running start, which means this thing can just land on people, which as we all know from listening to the dragon episodes and Terry, that's one of the most terrifying things and should just destroy parties. It doesn't have a multi-attack, but the bite attack that it has does get a plus 14 to hit. It has a reach of 15 feet and it does 10d6 plus 9 piercing damage. So this thing is no slouch in a fight. But it's really not meant to do much of anything except disgorge its allies, which is its other main action. It recharges on a 6, so remember, it can do this over and over and over again. And it will disgorge 1d4 Barlguras, 3d6 Knolls led by one Knoll Fang of Yianagu, 6d6 Dretches, or 1d3 rocks. They have to appear within 30 feet of the Crococtoic's mouth, or as near as possible, but you could be spewing out demons on the regular, and there's really nothing in it at all about how many it can hold. There's no mention of that. So in theory, as long as this thing is still alive, it can be spewing out hordes of demons. I get that this thing is built for the blood war. It's meant to turn the tide in any single battle, and I really like that. And while it is a CR-14, I would not throw this at any party below about a level 17. Just because it has the potential every round to get backup. And it can leave and swim away whenever it wants. It can jump and land on people. It's got crazy resistances and immunities, uh, which, I mean, they should be able to bypass everything that they have by really the end of tier two should have magical properties to it. But the fact is that you can't really detect it until it's too late. And here it is. And now it's got friends. That's crazy. When this thing spews out 1d4 Barlguras at you, you're dealing with those things first. And if you are unlucky enough to get within 15 feet of this thing, it is going to chomp on you. Meanwhile, it is going to be waiting and trying to puke up the next round of whatever nastiness is out there. 6d6 dretches? Sure, a dretch is nothing, and your fireball spell is going to wipe out a shit ton of them. But the action economy is working against the party, so this thing stacks way higher than it should, because it can bring with it an army. And the longer that it's on the battlefield, the more deadly it becomes. Now, before we get into the vehicles, I want to talk about a couple other constructs that are directly related to the lower planes. An interesting addition into this book, the descent into Avernus or Avernus, depending on how you want to pronounce it. it it's a new kind of golem, but it's really very similar to an old kind of golem. They're calling it the fiendish flesh golem. Now, for those of you that are not familiar with a flesh golem, it's essentially Frankenstein. It's essentially sewn together parts. That is the basic idea behind it. It's sewn together parts of people and elves and dwarves and whatnot. It's a medium-sized creature. It's been stitched together. It's got a berserk feature. When it drops to a certain number of hit points, 
It goes absolutely batshit crazy and is difficult to calm down. It heals if it gets struck by lightning, and it's scared of fire. And for the most part, that sums it up. They're pretty hard to kill, but they're not brutally difficult because they're only a CR5. Uh, their slam attack is pretty powerful for that level, but it's really nothing over the top. And so then they turn around and they gave us the idea that, well, wait a minute, what if they make a flesh golem out of fiendish parts? But it's not considered a fiend, it's considered a construct. And here are the differences between the fiendish flesh golem and the standard one. Of course, these things are created by night hags. It was always going to be night hags. You could kind of feel it in the flavor of this. Night hags are the perfect fiend for stitching together bits and pieces of other creatures that they find along the way. But they keep the process for creating fiendish flesh golems very secretive. Every one of the flesh golems can fly because they have the magical ability to do it, even if they don't have wings. Every flesh golem is very, very different because of all the different pieces it gets. So when you start thinking about what fiends are involved, I would say that you have a little bit of freedom in being able to add certain effects that may or may not be standard, depending on whether or not they're stitching together a Baylor or a Glabrazoo. Let's get into some of the mechanics of it. The CR, first of all, bumps from fifth for the regular flesh golem up to eight. And they're large, they're no longer medium, so these things are pretty beefy. They're also not neutral, they're just considered unaligned now, so do with that what you will. I feel like that's Wizards retconning a little bit, and if they ever do a major re-release of the Monster Manual, the Golems will probably be unaligned and not just neutral. There's a plus three increase to its AC, and the hit points more than doubles. They can fly 30 feet and walk 30 feet. The strength and con both get minor bumps. And uh, the intelligence gets a bump, but the modifier doesn't change. So, you know, who gives a shit? Um, it's resistant to fire and cold damage and immune to lightning, poison, and the bludgeoning slashing piercing from non-magical weapons that aren't adamantine. Now, the lightning, poison, and bludgeoning, and slashing, and piercing, the adamantine, all that's normal for, for flesh golems. The resistant to fire and cold, that's new. And the other interesting thing is that they aren't immune to silver weapons like the normal one is. I don't know why they added that little bit of detail in here, but I like it. The Berserk feature is exactly the same, except that it triggers at uh, 100 hit points or fewer instead of 60 hit points or fewer, which makes sense because it got a huge bump to its its number of hit points, and everybody's doing more damage by level 8 than they were doing at level 5. So It no longer suffers from the Aversion of Fire, which had imposed disadvantage on attacks and ability checks until the end of the Golem's next turn if it took fire damage. It doesn't get that anymore because, well, frankly, it's resistant to fire and it's from freaking hell. It's still immune to having its form altered by any spells or effects. It still heals if it's hit with a lightning spell. It still has advantage on saves against spells and magical effects. And it still has a multi-attack, which counts as magical attacks. As far as the attacks themselves go, it used to be a plus 7 to hit. Now it's a plus 8. It used to be 2d8 plus 4 bludgeoning. Now it's 2d10 plus 5 bludgeoning. It's not very inspired when you get down to the attack, but I feel like if you want to make this a CR9 or a CR10, 
and you want to bump it up a little bit, then you should be giving it bits and pieces of weird things from Wastroliths and Hezrus and any one of the crazy-ass devils that you can find. Because it's all about bits and pieces of creatures, you can stitch all of these things together and try to really make this your own. The other thing that's really interesting to me is that when a demon dies, and this is this is canon, when a demon dies, it just turns into what's called demon ichor. It just turns into this black, tar-like, nasty substance that smells and probably doesn't taste too good. Which means that if this thing has demon parts attached to it, those parts must have been cut off while the demon was still alive. I'm getting some real torture chamber crazy night hag nurse amputee like body horror level shit going on if you can find the lab where these things are made that's got to be a nasty place to be and i hope that someone is going to use that idea in a halloween one shot let's jump in now to the hellfire engine this is the one that everybody's been kind of waiting for. This is the one that I skipped before because we weren't going to do constructs. But here we are between flesh golems and vehicles. So we got to bring this up. First and foremost, yes, this is a construct. It's not a fiend. You're not going to be able to sense it with your primeval awareness. It's considered lawful evil. It's a huge construct. And it's semi-autonomous because it says specifically Amnazus and other devilish generals hold them in reserve until they're needed. They're usually out there to crush mortals and demons, but sometimes these things get loose and they're driven berserk by their own need to destroy. Every one of them is slightly different and they are incapable of subtlety or trickery, but they are just going to wreck house when they're around. They run on souls. They trap souls. Mortal creatures, specifically mortal creatures, so not necessarily demons, but mortal creatures that are slain by the Hellfire engines end up joining the Infernal Legions in hours unless powerful magic intervene on their behalf. Archdukes would like nothing better than to modify this magic so it works against demons too, but they haven't figured out how to do that yet. Remember, it's a construct, and it doesn't require air, food, drink, or sleep. This thing is going to run after your party, and if they can't stop it, it is going to be a Terminator coming after them. It's got a high AC, it's got high hit points, but not as high as you think it should be considering it's a challenge rating 16. I feel like I could throw this against a level 11 party, and it could probably be defeated. It'd be scary, but it would be defeated pretty easily. The strength and con are through the roof. The dex is okay. It's got saving throws in dex, wisdom, and uh, it's got a saving throw of charisma plus zero. So I think that's probably just because the charisma modifier is at a negative five because its charisma and its intelligence are garbage. It has resistances to cold, psychic, and the standard bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing from non-magical uh, attacks that aren't silvered specifically. It is immune to fire and poison, which makes sense. It is a hellfire engine. Its condition immunities are charmed, deafened, exhaustion, frightened, paralyzed, poisoned, and unconscious. It does have dark vision out to 120 feet. I'm not sure this thing has eyes, but I, I can say that it can sense somehow up to 120 feet in the dark. Uh, it understands Infernal, but it can't speak. Like the Flesh Golem, 
It is immune to any spell or effect that could alter its form, and it has advantage on saving throws against magical effects and spells. Now, one of my favorite things about it is that it's got what's called Flesh Crushing Stride. The idea is that if it moves up to its speed in a straight line, so what you're doing is you're overrunning, you're charging, you're trying to run over your enemies here. During the move, it can enter any creature space that's large or smaller and force the creature to make a DC 18 dex saving throw. On a successful save, that creature is pushed five feet to the nearest space out of the Hellfire engine's path, but on a fail saved, you fall prone and you take 8d6 bludgeoning damage, and if it stays in your space while you are prone, it's considered on top of you, and you are now restrained as well. While you're restrained in this way, uh, you can make a DC 18 strength check, and on a success, you can be shunted to an unoccupied space of your choice within 5 feet of the Hellfire Engine, and you're no longer considered restrained, but man, these DC 18s can be a little rough, when you are running over bards and wizards and sorcerers. It also has three different options for weapons themselves. The first one, though, doesn't need any help from the other two. It is by far my favorite because it's just batshit insanity. It's called Bone Melt Sprayer, and it essentially shoots a 60-foot cone of acidic flame and any creature that is caught in the cone has to make a DC 20 deck save, taking 2d10 fire damage plus 4d8 acid damage on a fail, or half as much on a success. But if you fail the saving throw, then you are considered drenched in this shit, and you take an additional 1d10 fire and 2d8 acid at the end of every turn until you or someone else within 5 feet of you take an action to scrape that shit off of you. Unless you are a rogue or a monk or a very high level ranger, you are gonna take some amount of damage from this and it is going to hurt. It is going to hurt a lot. And I absolutely love it for the bizarre, disgusting, gross flavor involved in it. The next one is what's called the lightning flail. This one has got a plus 11 to hit, a 15 foot reach. I'm loving the reach in this episode. We got it with the Krokoktoic and now a 15 foot as well with the Hellfire engine. Man, we need things that have longer reach and now we're getting them. When you hit, you do 3d8 plus five bludgeoning damage plus five d8 lightning. Up to three other creatures of the Hellfire engine's choice that it can see within 30 feet have to make DC 20 deck saves or they take 5d8 lightning damage on a fail. Half as much on a success. That means that you are not only hitting someone with this massive lightning attack, you are also hitting everybody around them. And that was within 30 feet of the target. That's a 30 foot radius. You are smoking the party with this. The last option is the Thunder Cannon. The Hellfire Engine targets a point within 120 feet of it that it can see, and every creature within 30 feet of that point has to make, again, a DC 20 deck save, taking 5d8 bludgeoning damage plus 2d12 thunder damage. Again, take half as much on a successful save, but my god, the damage output on this thing is why it's got such a high challenge rating. The other thing that 
you should be noting on all of this is that there is no recharge on any of these. If you know that your guys are immune to acid or you've got a dragonborn that's resistant to lightning, you can just choose not to use that one and hit them with something else instead. There's so much potential for carnage with, with this thing. Interestingly enough, there's nothing in any of this that says that it's a siege weapon, and I really feel it should be. It should be doing double damage to objects and, and structures. But it does have the cool little flavor that if it kills a creature, that soul rises from the river sticks as a Lemure in Avernus in 1d4 hours. If the creature isn't revived before then, only a wish, spell, or killing the Lemure and casting true resurrection on the creature's original body can restore it to life. The only things that are immune to this are constructs and devils. This is an absolutely phenomenal way to force your players to go down to hell to rescue a friend. You need gentle repose or you need some sort of sequester spell, something to keep that body from rotting. You need it to be in a safe environment on the regular primaterial plane while they go down into one of the lower planes. They have to find this Lemire. First, they got to find it. Then they got to murder it. And I'm pretty sure you're playing Where's Waldo before you can get that far. And then, only then, you have to find high-level, ninth-level spells in order to bring them back. That is such a crazy quest. And I absolutely love it. The idea of a Hellfire engine starting off your Tier 2 portion of your campaign, and it starts off by running over the prophesized messiah, the only person that can save the world, and now your heroes, they have to A, stop the Hellfire engine, which they're probably too low level to do, and B, now descend into hell and find the soul of this creature, of this messiah, and bring it back up, and then wrangle high-level wizards and sorcerers to come together to help them, maybe a high-level cleric, and then you can get into who sent it. And now you've got a big bad evil guy worked into the background as well. Okay, now let's shift our focus away from these creatures, and let's look at the obviously inspired by Mad Max Fury Road batshit over-the-top, ridiculously amazing, crazy, bizarre, and fantastic vehicles that you can get to travel through the Nine Hells. First and foremost, these machines are vehicles that are diabolical. They are devilish. They are from the Nine Hells, and they are fueled by the souls of the damned. Some of them can be used as scouts. Some of them can be used as uh, troop transports, and some of them can be used as tanks. But they give you four different options in the book, and I'm sure that you can kind of homebrew your own if you need something specific, but I absolutely love what they have to offer. Now, each one has a creature and cargo capacity that's described. It says right in it that the creatures that are in and on the vehicle itself either have to be in one of the slots, in a passenger seat, or clinging on to the outside of the vehicle. 
I really like the flavor of the idea of clinging on, and I myself would say that if there's not a spot for you to be sitting, to be operating a piece of this vehicle, of this machine, then you have to be clinging on to the outside and hoping. Maybe you're holding on to the outside and you're just flinging spells or shooting a crossbow or doing whatever that you can, because these things, uh, this is so Mad Max and it's so much fun. I, ah, you can hear the excitement in my voice. So, uh, first and foremost is the armor class. Every one of them is considered to have an armor class of 19 plus its dexterity. When it's not moving though, any attacks made against the machine itself uh, have advantage because of course it's not going anywhere. There are ability scores. Uh, its size and weight determine the strength. The dexterity is how well it handles. And a constitution is its durability and the quality of the construction. It doesn't really have an intelligence, wisdom, or charisma score at all. So if it has a zero in the score, it automatically fails any check or saving throw that would, that would use that score. There are hit points involved in each, and we're going to talk about repairs to the vehicle afterwards. Um, there's also a, uh, a mechanic about what happens when it drops to zero hit points, ceases to function. If it's damaged beyond repair, what happens to the souls inside of it? Because they're considered to be inside the vehicle's furnace and released to the afterlife, which is ridiculously fun. There's a damage threshold mechanic as well in this, which is very similar to the damage reduction mechanic from earlier editions, but it's not quite the same. Let me go into it right now. The idea is that there's a numerical value that an attack has to do a certain amount of damage beyond this numerical value. It can meet or has to surpass it. So for example, if there's a damage threshold of, let's just say I'm gonna pick around number 10, and you do six damage to it, no damage is actually incurred. There's nothing that happens to the machine itself. The vehicle does not take any damage because I didn't get up to that number of 10. But if I do 11 points of damage, so 10 or above, let's just pick 11. If I do 11 points of damage, then it takes all 11 points. So this is not negating the first nine points of damage. You just have to do so much damage that it's going to overwhelm this area and uh, like this area of the plating or the armor that it has, and then that area will take the full brunt of that damage. There's also a mishap threshold, which we'll get into the mishaps later. They're actually a lot of fun and gives you some really fun ideas about other ways that you can uh, look at chases through with wagons or, or even ships if you wanted as well. But before we get to that, let's talk about the action stations and the crew. Now, first and foremost, every single one of these machines needs to have a person in the action stations in order for the actions to be able to be used. Think about um, the fact that a cannon needs to have someone lighting the fuse or loading the cannonball in in order for the cannon to go off. Otherwise, it just sits inert. It's the same basic idea here. If you don't have people in the appropriate spots, then you cannot use some features on these machines. And every time that you use one of these actions, it takes an action in initiative to do it. Not a bonus action, not a movement. It takes your action, which means you cannot be doing your attacks or your spell casting or anything else. You are actively controlling this machine. So let's get into the nitty gritties. First and foremost, these things are considered magical. So if you go into an anti-magic field, everything, the engine, the furnace, whatever it is, it all just shuts right down. And it can't be restarted until 
both the engine and the furnace, and I would say the rest of the machine, are free of the field. They do provoke opportunity attacks as normal, and when they do, the attacker can target the vehicle or any creature riding on or inside it that does not have total cover. And of course, you have to be able to reach it. The action stations themselves uh, do take up an action, like I mentioned before, and once a creature uses a station's action, that action cannot be used again until the start of that creature's next turn. Only one creature can occupy each station. So, what that says to me is that if the halfling in the party fires the cannon, the next person in, in initiative can't come through and then do it again. Right? It has to have a moment to recharge or reload. A creature that's not occupying an action station is either in a passenger seat or clinging to the outside, and you can take actions as normal. One of the action stations that is available in every single one of the vehicles is the helm. It's essentially where the driver sits. They have a steering wheel. They've got levers and pulleys and pedals and all sorts of other crazy-ass controls, maybe buttons to press and, and whatever you can think of to flavor it yourself, but the helm requires a driver to operate. If it doesn't have a driver, it automatically fails every dexterity save, and it essentially just doesn't drive. Now, you can be proficient with land vehicles, and at that point, you can add your proficiency bonus to ability checks and saving throws that use the Infernal War Machine's ability scores. You use your action as the driver to either propel the vehicle up to its speed or bring the vehicle to a dead stop. While the vehicle is moving, the driver can steer it along any course. It doesn't say anything about having to slow down, to stop, to back up or in reverse. So it's just moving that speed as you would for really any other creature. If the driver is incapacitated or leaves or does nothing at all, then the war machine stays on course. It stays on the same speed and it does the exact same thing that it did the last round unless it hits an obstacle big enough to stop it. Now here's some bonus actions that a driver can do. You can start the engine or shut it off. You can cause the infernal machine to take the dash or disengage action while the vehicle's engine is running. Or you can insert a soul coin or pour a flask of demon ichor into the engine's furnace. What is a soul coin, you ask? A soul coin is essentially a token imbued with mortal souls that you put into the furnace and it gets burned up immediately and all of those souls get added to the machine and they slowly become destroyed over time as it fuels the machine. It is just the fuel that gets these vehicles moving. You can also use Demon Icker as a sort of nitrous oxide boost like they do in the Fast and the Furious movies, I guess might be the best way to, uh, the best parallel there. Now, there are other weapon stations. Uh, one weapon can be replaced with another, and there are alternative kinds of weapon stations, but there is a maximum number per vehicle as well. You also do need the appropriate number of crew to operate any one of these replacement weapons as well. Uh, let's get into the fuel a little bit, though. Among the vehicle's helm controls is a narrow slot in which a soul coin can be fed. So this thing is really like the, it's actually the size of a coin. If you put it inside, it goes into the furnace, which is two size categories smaller than the vehicle itself. The War Machine's furnace consumes the soul coin instantly, expending all of the remaining charges at once 
and destroying the coin in the process. The soul that's inside the coin is now trapped in the furnace instead. It powers the war machine for a duration that's determined by how many charges that the soul coin had when it was consumed. One charge is 24 hours, two charges is 48, three is 72, and so on and so forth. So you get one day of use for every soul in one of these coins. If the soul is still trapped in the furnace, when this duration ends, the soul is destroyed. Not even gods can restore a soul destroyed in this manner. That is the end, pure oblivion, no afterlife, gone. One of my favorite details that I think a lot of people are going to overlook when it comes to these vehicles is the fact that they are not quiet. It says right in the text, you can hear the, the anguished, audible screams of the souls trapped inside the furnace for 60 feet in every direction. Each new soul that's fed to the furnace adds more fuel to the vehicle, allowing it to run longer. So I love the idea of just dropping 400 of these coins in, and there's just being this chorus, this ongoing screaming chorus as you are tearing through, you are tearing ass over a wasteland in the middle of the night, and they can see the fire from the engine, and anybody nearby can hear the screams as it goes by. That's terrifying, and I absolutely love it. And I hope that anybody running these war machines really leans into the audible factor of them. Now, as for the Demon Icker boost, you can pour a flask of Demon Icker into an Infernal War Machine's furnace, and that will increase the speed by 30 feet for one minute. While the vehicle's speed is increased, in this way you roll a d20 at the start of each of the driver's turns. On a 1, the furnace ruptures. And I'll get into what that means when we look at the mishaps. Which means you have a 5% chance of blowing up your freaking vehicle. So, really beneficial, but, well, no pain, no gain. But before we get into the mishaps, let's look at the vehicles themselves so we kind of know what we're dealing with here. First and foremost is the screaming, two-wheeled motorcycle called Devil's Ride. The front of it looks like the face of a grinning devil, and the horns sweep back to become the handlebars for the motorcycle. It doesn't have weapons, but it does have incredible speed and maneuverability. It can carry only one medium creature. While it is large, it weighs 500 pounds, and it can carry 100 pounds of cargo, it can only hold one person. It has an AC of 23, so that's 19 when motionless, because it's got a plus 4 to its dex, and when it's not moving, you get advantage to hit it, like I said before. It only has 30 hit points. This is not a 4d8 plus 2, it's just straight 30. The damage threshold is 5, which means if you do less than, if, than 5 damage, so 0 to 4 damage, nothing happens when you hit it. The mishap threshold is 10. If you do more than 10, then we're going to roll on the mishap table to see what happens. It can move 120 feet in a round. Its strength is plus 2, its con is plus 1, and its dex is plus 4, which makes a lot of sense. And of course, there's zeros in the other stats. It is utterly and completely immune to fire, makes sense, poison, sure, and psychic damage. It's immune to the conditions of blinded, charmed, deafened, frightened, paralyzed, petrified, poisoned, stunned, and unconscious. 
The other cool thing about this is that it has the ability to jump. If it moves at least 30 feet in a straight line, keep in mind its speed is 120, but if it can go 30 feet in a straight line, it can clear a distance of up to 60 feet when jumping over a chasm, ravine, or other gap. And yes, jumping does take up the same amount of movement as normal. It's got what's called prone deficiency as well, which means that if it falls prone, it can't right itself. It's considered incapacitated and someone else has to pull it upright, but it also has the ability to stunt. On its turn, the driver of the Devil's Ride can expend 10 feet of movement to perform one free vehicle stunt, such as a wheelie or a burnout. Before you can do it though, you, will, you have to move 10 feet in a straight line and you have to make a DC 10 deck save using the bike's dexterity. If you do that, the stunt is successful. Otherwise, the driver is unable to perform the stunt and can't attempt another stunt until the start of its next turn. If you fail by five or more, the Devil's Ride and the creature driving it immediately fall prone and the bike wipes out and comes to a dead stop. There's the helm that requires one crew. It grants half cover and you can drive and steer uh, the Devil's Ride from here. You also get a reaction. If the Devil's Ride is able to move, the driver can use its reaction to grant advantage on a dex saving throw. So while the motorbike is kind of fun, I like the next one a little bit better. It's called the Tormentor. It says right in the description of the Tormentor, it is essentially a dune buggy. It has bladed iron wheels that drive the vehicle forward. It's a huge vehicle and it is 3,000 pounds. So don't go over rope bridges with this. It can hold four medium creatures and 500 pounds worth of cargo. Its AC is 21, so less than the other one, but its hit points are 60, so double. Its damage threshold is 10, and its mishap threshold is 20. It goes 100 feet instead of the 120 that the Devil's Ride went. The strength and the constitution are both raised for this one. The dex is dropped a little bit, but it's got the same immunities and condition immunities as well. It also has crushing wheels, which means that the Tormentor can move through the space of any medium or smaller creature, which forces a DC 13 dex save for 2d10 bludgeoning damage uh, and the potential to be knocked prone. If you're already prone, you take an extra 2d10 bludgeoning damage. This trait can't be used against any particular creature more than once per turn. But I love the idea of three or four of these things going by. The first one knocks the person over and the others just turn them to freaking pulp. It also has the same prone deficiency that the Devil's Ride had, which means that if it's flipped over, it can't get back up on its own. Uh, all of its weapon attacks are considered magical. It has what's called raking size, which means that when it moves within five feet of a creature that isn't prone or another vehicle for the first time on a turn, it can rake that creature or vehicle with blades that stick out from it, doing 2d10 plus two slashing damage. A creature moves out of the way and takes no damage on a DC 13 deck save, and a vehicle gets out of the way if the driver at the helm makes the same DC 13 deck save. For the Tormentor, there are two action stations. The first one is Helm, which requires one crew again, but this time it grants three quarters cover. And again, it allows you to drive and steer the Tormentor. There's also the Harpoon Flinger, which requires one crew and grants half cover. 
Now, this has ammunition, so it comes standard with 10 harpoons, and has a range attack, which is plus 7 to hit. You have 120 feet of freaking range on this, and you hit doing 2d8 plus 2 piercing damage. Again, you get the reaction called Juke, which allows you to use your reaction to grant the Tormentor advantage on a dexterity saving throw. Now, the Demon Grinder. It is a bulky, armored coach that rumbles loudly as it crushes obstacles and enemies in the path with the help of a swinging wrecking ball. It has iron jaws mounted on the front of the vehicle, and it handles like a garbage truck. This thing is gargantuan. It is 12,000 pounds. It can carry eight medium creatures. Its cargo capacity is one ton, and its AC is 19. It has 200 hit points. The damage threshold is 10, and the mishap threshold is 20, much like the Tormentor. Its speed is also 100 feet as well, but its strength is plus four, its con is plus four, and its dex just is at a straight 10. There's, there's no bonus there, which is why its AC is 19. Again, the same damage immunities, fire, poison, psychic, condition immunities, blinded, charmed, deafened, frightened, paralyzed, petrified, poisoned, stunned, and unconscious. It has crushing wheels as well. That's one of the features, which means that it can move through the space of any large or smaller creature and force a DC-11 deck save throw for 4d10 bludgeoning damage and being knocked prone. If you're already prone, then you take an extra 4d10 bludgeoning damage. And you can't use this against the same creature multiple times on the same turn. Again, the weapons are considered magical, and it has the prone deficiency, which means it can't get back up if it gets knocked down. The helm requires one crew and grants three-quarters cover again and allows you to drive and steer the demon grinder. Now, here are the three really fun actions. First and foremost, there's the chomper. This requires one crew and grants half cover, but it's a melee weapon attack, plus nine to hit. Its reach is five feet, and you do 6d6 plus four piercing damage. These are the jaws that are at the very front of this that I talked about before that are just constantly moving and chewing up and spitting out creatures. And it says that a target reduced to zero hit points by this damage is ground to bits and spit out through pipes on both sides of the demon grinder. Any non-magical items the target was holding or carrying are destroyed as well. You essentially are a freaking wood chipper. Also, you have a wrecking ball on the back. This requires one crew and grants half cover as well. It has a plus nine to hit. It's got a 15 foot reach and it does 8d8 plus four bludgeoning damage. You can double the damage if the target is an object or a structure, which means you're running around just fucking shit up. I'm thinking about, I think it's Terminator 3 where they are driving through the city with the freaking wrecking ball, wiping out entire portions of buildings and stuff. Man, I absolutely love this. I want to drive this thing through water deep. Additionally, it also has two harpoon flingers, so that's a total of five action stations. There are 10 harpoons per station, and it's a plus five to hit, range 120 feet, and you do 2d8 piercing damage with them. I freaking love this vehicle. It is just pure carnage, and I just, I need to have this in every campaign moving forward. 
Honestly, if I'm a gnome tinkerer, I want to get my hands on one of these things and make it run somehow where I don't need it to use souls. Maybe alchemist fire instead. But I got to figure some way out to have one of these things so I can just, uh, you know what? You know what? I want to wreck the entire jungle in Tomb of Annihilation. What's up, Strahd? You think you're a badass? Come get ground up by my freaking demon grinder. I so desperately want to drive one of these things through the narrow corridors in the Tomb of Horrors and just destroy freaking everything. I love this vehicle. The last one, which is still freaking awesome as well, is the Scavenger. The Scavenger, it says, handles like a small bus. And it's used to sift through the battlefield looking for scrap metal and other materials that's worth salvaging. Attached to the back of it is a crane with an iron grappling claw that's fastened to the end of a winch with a 50-foot-long chain. I think that's badass. The Scavenger is a huge vehicle. It's 9,000 pounds, and it can carry eight medium creatures and a cargo capacity of two tons. The AC is 20, which is 19 while motionless, and it has 150 hit points. Its damage threshold is 10, and its mishap threshold is 20. Again, a speed of 100 feet. It's got more strength even than the, than the Demon Grinder. It has a 20 into strength and a 20 into con, and a plus 1 into deck, so it's a little bit more maneuverable as well. The same damage and condition immunities that we've seen with the others, and it also has the crushing wheels that the Demon Grinder had. This time it's uh, for larger, smaller creatures and a DC 12 dexterity saving throw for 3d10 bludgeoning damage and being knocked prone. Again, if you're already prone, you take an additional 3d10 bludgeoning damage. And considering that this thing is meant to go over the battlefield after the battle and pick up bits and pieces of useful uh, metals and items and whatnot, I feel like there are a lot of people that are still prone, that are not quite dead, that are just getting just blown over by this thing and getting smushed to a pulp. Remember, you can't use the crushing wheels against any creature more than once each turn. Again, we have the weapons are magical. It has the prone deficiency. There's the helm that grants three quarters cover and allows one crew member to drive and steer the scavenger. There's the grappling claw on the back that requires one crew and grants half cover. And this is a, considered a melee weapon attack. It's got a plus 10 to hit, but a reach of 15 feet. The target is grappled with an escape DC of 12 on a hit. If the target is a creature, it is restrained until the grapple ends. The grappling claw can grapple only one target at a time. And if you're operating it, you can use a bonus action to make it release what, whatever it's holding. I like the idea of hitting somebody with this and then moving the claw over a ravine and releasing it. I think there's a lot of really fun ways. I like the idea of, of trying to get information out of a party member by dangling them over the river sticks by this grappling claw. There's some really fun opportunities here, some really cool uses. I think I want to grapple uh, a mount and pull it out from underneath someone as well. Like, ah, there's a lot of fun in here. I'm really enjoying it. You get two more of the harpoon flingers, plus six to hit, 120 foot range, 2d10 plus one piercing damage. So they're a little bit more useful than the one on the demon grinder. I feel like the demon grinder's got its own thing going for it though. 
Anyway, those are the four vehicles, and I absolutely think that they are phenomenal. I wish that we had even more of these things, and I wish we had more than just the diabolical side of it as well. I want to see gnomish vehicles. I want to see dwarven excavators. I want to see celestial chariots. I think there's a lot of fun stuff that we can do in here, and really the sky's the limit. But let's talk about another kind of limit, the mishaps. Now, you heard me talking about how there was a, a damage threshold, which I spoke of before. It was usually 10, except for the um, the Devil's Ride. Uh, but there was also the mishaps as well, which was usually 20, again, except for the Devil's Ride, which was 10. So let's talk about mishaps for a second. When you end up having to roll for a mishap, you roll in the mishaps table. A uh, war machine that is in motion... If it takes damage from a single source equal to or greater than its mishap threshold, or it fails an ability check, or its driver fails an ability check using the vehicle's ability by more than five. So, what are the mishaps? Well, you're rolling on a d20 table, and let's go through them really quickly. There are mechanics for each one of these. It usually involves some sort of uh, ability check in order to either end it or to avoid the mishap. But what you can do is you can end up flipping the vehicle. You can damage an axle. You can accidentally shed armor. You can get hit by blinding smoke that's coming out of the helm area, uh, and that causes some blindness. There are weapon malfunctions. There's furnace rupturing, which affects your speed. And then there is locked steering, which means that you are stuck going in one direction. And then of course the engine flare, and that's when you roll the one on the D20. It's by far the worst because you take three D6 fire damage if you're in or on the vehicle. So interestingly enough, your vehicle can also get exhaustion the same way that a creature can. It uses the basic exhaustion rules for fifth edition, but when it gets to level six, its hit points immediately drop to zero and the vehicle breaks down. The only way to remove the effects of exhaustion on an infernal war machine is to repair it. Well, how do you repair it? Well, you have to meet the criteria. You can't operate the helm or the weapon station while making repairs. Second, you gotta be able to reach the damaged area. And third, you have to have the right tools for the job. It lists both Smith's tools and tinkerer's tools, for example, but I would say maybe even blacksmith's tools, depending on the nature of the damage caused and, and what's broken. But before you begin repairs, you have to decide whether or not the repairs are aimed at ending a mishap, removing a level of exhaustion, or restoring hit points. Let's talk about ending a mishap first. There was a repair DC attached to everything on the mishap table except for one, which was flipping over. Uh, you don't need to end that mishap, you need to get out and right the vehicle again. But everything else requires you to do an ability check. It's usually strength or dex based, and you are going to have disadvantage if the vehicle is moving. But you can add your proficiency if you are proficient with the tools that you need to use to make the repairs. If you want to remove exhaustion, then you can spend one hour or more trying to reduce the exhaustion level. First of all, it has to be stationary, and the creature that is making the repairs must have spare parts to make the necessary repairs. After an hour, you can make a DC 15 intelligence check. Remember, you cannot do this on a short rest and gain the benefits of a short rest. This is something you are actively doing. You are not resting. So, you have to make a DC 15 intelligence check. 
You can add any proficiency bonus to the check if you are proficient with the tools while making the repairs. And if the check succeeds, the exhaustion level decreases by one. If it fails, the exhaustion level remains unchanged and you can try again and spend another hour trying to do it with the exact same replacement parts. It just didn't work the first time. You can also attempt to restore hit points, and it's very similar. You spend an hour or more trying to patch the hull and replace damaged parts. After an hour of repair work, uh, you can make a DC 15 deck save using a proficiency bonus if you're proficient with the tools that you're using to make the repairs. If you succeed, you regain 2d4 plus 2 hit points. If you fail, you regain no hit points, but you can try again later. That may not seem like a whole hell of a lot, but I feel like the vehicles and the traveling and whatnot, you'd sit down and spend eight hours working on this vehicle and see how often you were successful in repairing it. This doesn't seem like you're doing a whole lot to it uh, in a short rest unless you're doing a quick pit stop to get up and running to get you the last leg of the journey. I actually really like this mechanic. I like how few hit points you get, and it makes it feel like you need to spend eight hours while everyone else is getting a rest to get your vehicle up and running again. As far as crashing goes, your war machine crashes into anything that could reasonably damage it, such as an iron wall or another vehicle. I'm thinking maybe a giant boulder or a cliff face. You immediately come to a sudden stop. You take 1d6 bludgeoning damage for every 10 feet that you moved, since the last turn, up to a maximum of 20d6. Now, that is just for the vehicle itself. Whatever the vehicle struck takes the same amount of damage. If it's less than the Infernal War Machine's uh, damage threshold, the vehicle takes no damage, but the object still does. Regardless of whether or not it takes damage, each creature on the inside of the vehicle or hanging onto the vehicle when it crashes has to make a DC 15 strength save taking 1d6 bludgeoning damage for every 10 feet the vehicle moved since its last turn, up to a maximum of 20d6. You take half as much on a successful save. This is essentially the same mechanic for falling. 1d6 bludgeoning for every 10 feet that you have moved. Now, strangely, there's also a rule for crashing into creatures as well. We did talk about how you could run over some creatures with some of the vehicles, so I guess this is an alternative. If you were to hit, let's say, a hill giant on the Devil's Ride, then this is the mechanic that you would use. Uh, the creature can use its reaction to attempt to get out of the vehicle's way. Uh, doing so means that it will take no damage with a successful DC 10 dexterity saving throw. If the saving throw fails, then you take 1d6 bludgeoning damage for every 10 feet. If you are two size categories larger, you will just move right through it and you can continue to move, assuming you have any uh, movement left. Otherwise, you come to a complete stop. Uh, every creature inside or on the vehicle goes through the same thing. It's a DC 15 strength save to determine if you take either full or half of the 1d6 bludgeoning damage for every 10 feet the vehicle moved. They also have a little paragraph in here about falling. It's exactly what you think it would be. Um, you will take 1d6 bludgeoning damage per 10 feet fallen, up to a maximum of 20d6, uh, and you will land prone. That's pretty standard for falling. Now, there are also some alternative weapon stations that you can do. They're called fiendish variations, and they're a lot of fun, these different modifications that you can put on, which means you can get rid of your, your harpoons, you can get rid of some of the other attachments, and you can add these 
uh, options instead. First is the Acidic Bile Sprayer, which, what a great name. This is a hose weapon that's attached to demonic organs that produce an acidic bile that dissolves flesh on contact. Weirdly, demonic organs. So again, I guess they're pulling organs out of demons while the demons are still alive and attaching them to their vehicles. This requires one crew and it grants half cover and it recharges on a 5 or a 6. And what happens is you spray from a nozzle a 30-foot cone. Every creature in the cone has to make a DC 12 deck save, taking 9d8 acid damage on a failed save, half as much on a successful one. And if a creature is reduced to zero hit points by this damage, they are dissolved, leaving behind any objects it was carrying or wearing. Which means you can just straight up freaking melt your players. There's also a flamethrower because of course there is. Although it's useless against demons, it's great against mortals. Fire shoots out in a 60-foot line uh, that is 5 feet wide. Each creature in the line must make a DC 15 dex save or take 48 fire damage. Take half as much on a successful save. The fire ignites any flammable objects in the area that are not being carried or worn. There's also the Infernal Screamer. A writhing humanoid torso made of melting wax juts out from this station with a barbed hand crank between its shoulder blades. The figure telepathically shrieks in agony when the crank is turned. It requires one crew. It grants half cover. Seriously, wizards, what drugs were you on when you came up with this one? Because you need to share. The operator targets one creature that it can see within 120 feet of the screamer, and the target has to make a DC 15 wisdom save, taking 4d12 psychic damage on a failed save, or half as much on a successful one. I'm always just happy whenever I see anything that does psychic damage, and the fact that it's so weird and twisted and bizarre and horrifying just makes it that much better. The last one is the sticks sprayer. This flexible hose is connected to a tank that holds 30 gallons of water from the river Styx. Each use of the weapon depletes 10 gallons of the water, so you can only use it three times. Refilling the tank requires access to the sticks. This is considered a ranged spell attack. It's plus five to hit, your range is 30 feet, you can attack one creature, and the creature is struck by water from the river sticks and is targeted by a feeble mind spell with a spell save DC of 20. If it's already feeble minded, then it is immune to this effect, as is any creature that's adapted to the river sticks. Like, for example, the Krokic Toic. If the target fails its saving throw and the spell's effect is not ended within 30 days, then it's now permanent, and the creature loses all of its memories and becomes a near mindless shell of its former self. Nothing short of godlike intervention can undo this effect. Additionally, you can also upgrade the armor. Sample upgrades, and I do say sample, so they're encouraging you to come up with your own, are the Canian Armor, which is an infernal iron from the coldest layer of the Nine Hells. And it has a 22 plus its dex modifier now for its armor class. And while the vehicle is not moving, attack rolls made against it still have advantage, but the Infernal War Machine now has immunity to cold damage in addition to its other damage immunities. There's also the Gilded Death Armor. This is gold stolen or bartered from the Archdevil Mammon. 
and it covers the vehicle's exterior. You cannot remove it without destroying the vehicle, and the gold turns to dust when the Infernal War Machine drops to zero hit points. It grants the vehicle resistance to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage. The last one is Soul Spike Armor. The vehicle is covered with spikes inscribed with blasphemous symbols. Luminous, ghostly figures impaled on these spikes wail and reach out in agony. If any creature that's not a devil dies within a 30-foot radius of the vehicle, then its soul, if it has one, is ripped out from its corporeal body and joins the wailing mass of luminous bodies that are stuck to the side of this thing. As long as the soul remains trapped, it can't be raised from the dead by any means. This is this is a plot hook. This is this is DM fodder right here. I'm absolutely loving this. You can only free a soul by destroying the vehicle or by targeting the spike that the soul is attached to with a remove curse spell or similar magic or by destroying the spike itself. Each spike is considered a small object, has 19 AC and 15 hit points, and is resistant to all damage except radiant damage. Now, we've talked weapons, we've talked armor, and you may think we're done, but my god, we're not. There are magical gadgets because we're going to James Bond the shit out of this thing now. Devils like to bedeck their infernal war machines with fiendish gadgets to be devil foes. The couple of things that they give you here as examples are necrotic smokescreen, which the vehicle's driver can activate this magical device as a bonus action, causing the vehicle to expel 30-foot cube of opaque smoke directly in front of it or behind it. The cloud doesn't move, and it lasts for a minute, and the area is heavily obscured, which is what you would expect. Any creature that enters a cloud for the first time or starts its turn takes 6d6 necrotic damage as they inhale this shit. A strong wind will get rid of the cloud, but this device needs 24 hours to recharge before it can be used again, so you really only get to pop the smoke screen once. The other option they give you is the teleporter. The driver can activate this magical device as a bonus action, causing the vehicle to teleport to an unoccupied space that the driver can see up to 300 feet away from the current position. All creatures and objects will go with it, and this device needs 24 hours to recharge before it can be used again. This can be used to great effect to mess up your players if you're in the middle of a chase. Speaking of chases, there are chase rules for Avernus as well. Now, there are some chase rules that are in the Dungeon Master's Guide already, uh, but you can use the Avernus Chase Complications table that's available uh, in this book as well. You use an Infernal War Machine's Constitution modifier to determine how many times it can dash during a chase. And when a chase complication forces the vehicle to make an ability check or the driver to make an ability check, then a mishap occurs if the check fails by five or more. So here are the complications. You're rolling a d20 and an 11 to 20 means that there's no complication. On a one to two, however, let's start at the bottom. You drive past a creature native to Avernus, and it chases after you. The DM chooses the creature, which means that you essentially get a random encounter. On a three, a fiery tornado 300 feet high and 30 feet wide crosses your path. You can avoid the tornado on a successful DC 15 deck save, 
Otherwise, the tornado envelops the vehicle and every single creature that's in or on it has to make a DC 18 deck save, taking 18 D10 fire damage on a fail save. Half as much on a successful one. 18 D10 fire on a DC 18 dex. My god, wizards, who hurt you? On a four, a swirling cloud of dust envelops the vehicle and any creature on or inside that doesn't have total cover is blinded. Now, of course, if you're wearing some sort of protective eye gear, this doesn't affect you. And you're only blinded until the start of your next turn, so it's not completely crippling, but it can be pretty bad when the driver's moving at high speeds and the DM wants to put a speed bump or a pothole in your way. On a 5, natural pillars of rock can grant cover as the vehicle swerves between them. The driver can make a DC 15 dex check using the vehicle's dexterity, and on a success, you get 3 quarters cover for the vehicle against any attacks. If you roll a 6, then you drive through a herd of low-level demons, and you have to make a DC 15 strength or dex check at the driver's choice to plow through the herd unimpeded. On a fail check, the herd counts as 30 feet of difficult terrain. If you are using the demon grinder for this, I am very, very happy. On a 7, the vehicle drives off a 10-foot high ledge and comes crashing down. Everybody on the outside has to make a DC 15 deck save or tumble off, taking normal damage from the fall and landing prone. If you roll an 8, Uneven ground threatens to slow your vehicle's progress. The vehicle must make a DC 10 dex check to get through okay. On a fail check, it counts as 60 feet of difficult terrain. And on a 9, then there are other abandoned war machines all over the landscape. And they're rusted beyond repair and they're half buried in the dust. And if the vehicle is using a dash this turn, then the driver has to use a DC 10 dexterity check to make sure that you don't crash into one of these derelict machines. If you roll a 10, part of the ground gives way underneath the vehicle, causing you to roll over. You have to succeed on DC 10 deck save. On a success, it rolls back into an upright position and can continue moving. On a failure, you land prone either upside down or on your side and come to a complete stop. Any unsecured creature holding onto the outside has to make a DC 20 strength save or tumble off landing prone in an unoccupied space within 20 feet of the overturned vehicle. I really like all of that. That's everything that we have for vehicles, which means that, just to go over it again really quickly, there are four different options, everything from freaking garbage truck to motorcycle. There are all sorts of crazy attacks. You're moving at high speeds. Mortal souls are fuel, and demon bodies are considered to be nitrous. As you are driving this thing, there are all sorts of complications. There are mishaps. You've got a little bit of some damage reduction for low-level attacks. But for the most part, you've got these big, crazy weapons hanging off of it. You can turn people to chunks. You can grapple them. And there are so many other fun little weird mechanics for repair, which is great. For exhaustion, which is great. For upgrades, which is fantastic. There's so much to do with these vehicles, and I hope everybody takes the opportunity to sit down and really think about what they would like to do, especially if you are running an evil campaign. How freaking badass is that? If you are ever going to go to hell, or you're going to be hell adjacent, or if you are going to run an evil campaign, head to the garage. Check this out. See what you can do, and work with your DM to include these infernal vehicles, and if they've never heard of it, Point them in that direction. These are so much fun, and they add a whole 
radically wacky, new, memorable side to Dungeons & Dragons without really tipping the scales in any given direction. I like these vehicles so much more than I liked the ships in the Ghosts of Saltmarsh. The ship stuff is useful, but it's not fun like this. It's not as interesting, and I would see about maybe using maybe using some of these uh, these weapons on the boatmen across the River Styx boat. Maybe you can put this on some pirate ships. Hell, put it on an airship. That'd be fantastic with the grappling hook. Anyway, while Descent into Avernus or Avernus, depending on how you want to pronounce it, was completely lacking in the devils and lackluster in the fiends, I feel like it more than made up for it with the fiendish war machines. So, that's it. We are now back up to date on everything fiend and devil and demon related as far as creatures go. Just a quick reminder that these vehicles are considered vehicles and not constructs. So any rules about constructs do not technically apply rules as written. And that wraps up another special for the It's a Mimic podcast. Of course, I have been Adam. And you can reach me and the rest of the crew here at the It's a Mimic podcast by going to www.itsamimic.com, emailing us at info at itsamimic.com, following us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, and dozens of other podcast catchers, as well as checking us out on all of our social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok for those of you that give crap. So... Thanks very much for tuning in, and I look forward to seeing you guys next week as we continue our ramp up to Halloween doing everything horror that we can. I believe next week's episode is all about black dragons. do shout outs when it comes to any of these special episodes but i'm going to take a second here and show a little bit of love to the people around me shanna is our nearly silent fourth member here at the it's mimic podcast she keeps the lights on she makes sure that everything's running the way that it should you guys hear her voice at the beginning and end of most episodes but she really is the reason that we are able to do what we do she takes care of all the weird behind the scenes business shit that the rest of us don't want to do I want to talk about the Call of Cthulhu people for just a minute. I want to thank Mieka first and foremost because it's my duty as a boyfriend to do that. She's been super patient as I've given up months and months of effort putting this stuff together with Dan. And I acknowledge the fact that it takes a hell of a lot of patience and effort to have a long distance relationship when one person disappears for multiple nights a week on a project that you don't really understand for months at a time. So I want to say thank you. I know intern Dave, who you guys can hear on the Deep Dark of Radiance right now, is really excited about joining us uh, for future projects. In fact, I think he's jumping on to the Halloween special. He's a big fan of Dungeons and & Dragons, and he's a big fan of us. And you guys have actually heard some of his questions in our mailbag episodes. And he is consistently giving feedback to us on a weekly basis. Anytime that there's a new and interesting change that's happening at the It's Mimic podcast... It's because Dave has given some sort of feedback and we're listening to him because he's someone that we know and trust. And that's why we're excited to work with him on future projects. 
Then, of course, there's Megan, who is also involved in the Deep Darker Radiance. She is stepping up to do some episodes as well. You guys heard her on Putting the Fun in Funeral, which was episode 37. You're also going to hear her on episode 38, which is Black Dragons. We're really thankful to have her involved. We're looking forward to working with her more in the future. And then, of course, there's Terry, who puts in long days, 20-hour days, and he gives us literally all the free time that he can manage to come in and work behind the scenes, make sure that we've got something going on for our social media. Just a brilliant marketing mind when it comes to things, and I'm very, very thankful to have him on board. And can I say enough good things about Dan? I don't think I can. Dan is the man. Now it's a rhyming plan. It's more than I can stand. Seriously, though, Dan is the heart and soul of this entire project. And as much as I sit down and say, Dan, I want to do 16 freaking episodes in a four-week period, and I want it to be high quality, and I want it to be informative, I want to make it more professional, I want it to be better, and Dan, I need you to be the person that works with me to do this. I'm coming over. I've got this impromptu meeting that's coming up in the middle of the, of the day that you're just going to have to sit there and listen to me ramble about ideas and pitches and we play D&D together for 12 hours a day so I already eat up one-seventh of his time and then he runs a family with with three small kids and he's got a physical job that he works and he's been struggling with some back issues recently and I don't know how this man does it but he is at the raggedy freaking edge and I have to say that more so than anybody else involved in this project I am super freaking thankful to have Dan with me working because I'm not good at this. I'm really not. If it wasn't for Dan and Terry, this shit wouldn't happen. If it wasn't for Shanna, if it wasn't for the support from Mieka, and for Dave and Megan stepping up to be involved and making it so that we can do bigger and better things, all of this would fall apart. And so I just want to give a quick thank you. And that's that's not including Brad, who stepped in for episode 30, or Tyler, who's given us music, or Cody, who's given us music, or Katie, who's given us all of these these logos and everything. There's so much collaboration that goes into this. So I thought I would throw in a great big thank you secretly at the very end of one of our little special episodes that I'm pretty sure the other guys are not going to listen to. But whether it's Charlie, who is helping us with our social media stuff that we don't understand, like TikTok, which is brand new, or whether it is those of you that are writing in to the mailbag episode, there are so many people involved in this process, and I'm blown away by this community. I'm absolutely in love with this, and I couldn't be a part of it if it wasn't for all of you. So just like a heartfelt thank you from the dick of the freaking podcast. Now, don't tell anybody, and I'll uh, I'll go back to beating up on Dan in a couple of weeks. As Terry would say, we out. <laughs>